Well, if you have a Bible, please open it with me to page 1131. 1131. We're going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to begin at verse 18. The Apostle Paul is writing to the Christians in Corinth. Corinth was the capital of sin in the world in the first century. It was infamous for its wickedness. If wicked people wanted to indulge their wicked passions, they would go to Corinth. It was a place where people put their morality on hold and went and indulged in everything you could imagine, every shape and size and form of wickedness. And yet, wonderfully, out of this cesspit of sin, God planted a church. And Paul writes to these Christians saved in Corinth. And this is what he says, verse 18 of chapter 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
Well, we're continuing to think about grace. We've seen already from Ephesians 2 that salvation is by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that faith is not of ourselves. It's a gift from God. It's not by what we do. So we have no grounds to boast. And our reading from 1 Corinthians 1 again has reinforced this. This idea that we Christians have nothing to boast about if we're Christians. We haven't earned salvation by doing something, by being better than others, by following rules, by jumping through hoops. We have been saved by grace. And we need to understand that word grace if we are to understand the gospel correctly. So I've given you this illustration before. That, that, that we're like people drowning in the middle of the ocean. Can we save ourselves? The world says, yes, we can. Yes, if we try harder, we can improve ourselves. We can turn over a new leaf. New Year's, re- new Year's resolutions, that's what we need. We can get religious, follow the rules and make ourselves better, says the world. But God says, no, you can't. All your efforts to, to improve yourselves, to rescue yourselves, are in vain. All you can do is cry out to God. And he needs to come down from heaven and get hold of you and lift you up out of that ocean of sin and death and rescue you. Jonah learned that in the belly of the fish. And he said, salvation is of the Lord. And so we're thinking of five Truths that all communicate to us this one great truth that salvation is of the Lord. And I've illustrated them with the hand, the five fingers of God's salvation. And we've learned already the thumb means that all of us human beings by nature are totally lost. We cannot save ourselves. The religions of this world are part of the deception of the devil. He's the deceiver of the nations. He blinds the eyes of men, thinking if you do this, do that, and do the other, you'll get to heaven. You won't. You won't. You are totally lost. The second finger that we're going to look at now is the fact that God has chosen to save some. Who's he chosen? The best people? The fastest? The strongest? The best? No. We've read already, haven't we, in 1 Corinthians. God chooses sometimes the the least likely candidates, the least impressive, deliberately, to show that it's not because we're better, but because God chose us. So we're going to be thinking about God's choice now as we continue to look at this five fingers of God's salvation. We've learned already in session one that we cannot save ourselves. We are spiritually dead because of sin. We need God himself from outside of us, to work supernaturally to rescue us. We've seen that just as Lazarus was physically dead, so too all of us are spiritually dead, and we need a miracle to be saved. Lazarus was stinking in the tomb. Mary and Martha said, don't roll away the stone because of the smell. Jesus insisted, and Jesus spoke those words. Lazarus, come forth. And he did. Some preachers have said, if he didn't put Lazarus in front of the words come forth, everybody would have come out of the graves. Jesus spoke. And Lazarus came out of the grave. That's what we see there. 
That was a miracle. Lazarus responded. Not because he, he was able to, but because God miraculously enabled him. And what we're going to learn now is that God chooses to say to you, if you're a Christian, or me, Julian, come forth on the 16th of October, 1981. And I did. And I said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I came forth from my spiritual deadness into new life in Christ. It was a miracle when I was saved. If you're a Christian, you'll have your testimony of how God saved you too. So, do you accept the Bible's teaching that all of us are, by nature, totally lost? We've hinted already, haven't we, that most people don't. Most people think, no, no, surely we can save ourselves. But the Bible says, no, you can't. Well, if you have grasped my first lesson, then this is the next one. This follows on logically. The Bible says that if we can't save ourselves, then God must work. How does God work? God chooses to intervene in the lives of some and rescue them. This is the truth we're going to look at. It's not my idea. It's not something novel that I've invented. We're going to see, as we did before with the first truth, it's taught in the Bible. And it's been understood throughout the uh, Christian world ever since the Acts of the Apostles, right onwards. And at the Reformation... When Christians went back to the Bible and read the writings of the apostles, just like we read 1 Corinthians 1, they saw that this is what God teaches in the Bible. And they wrote down these truths clearly in confessions. And you're Baptists here, as I am. And we have the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. And it, like the Church of England, uh, the 39 articles and other confessions before it, have all recognized this biblical teaching and that's what we're going to look at now so what is this truth let me begin by declaring it to you God has chosen to save certain people for himself to be with him in glory forever that's the truth that's the teaching of the Bible well when when did he choose these certain people to become his people. Well, the Bible says before the creation of the world, God is infinite. God is eternal. The, the, the past is as present to God as the future. He said to Moses at the burning bush, I am has sent you. Do you want a name for me? My name is I am. <laughs> because I am. <laughs> I'm always here I always was I always will be he's the God of yesterday today and forever he is I am and he he speaks as the eternal God and says before the creation of the world I chose to save and he acts out he enacts that salvation in history so when were his people chosen before the foundation of the world how through union with Christ. Who will be saved? Those who are joined by faith to Christ. Those are the people who will be saved. Not those who have tried their best. Who have come to church every Sunday. Who have put money in the collection. All those things are good. 
It's those who are joined by faith to Christ, including the thief on the cross who died next door to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. He trusted in Christ. Why them? There were two thieves, weren't there? One on the left, one on the right. Jesus said to one of them, today you'll be with me in paradise. But the other one was, he was a thief, just like his mate. He was next door to Jesus, just like his mate. He didn't go to heaven. Why not? Why did God choose the one thief and not the other? Well, not for any good in them, but simply because of God's free grace. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. So move on in your Bible. Ephesians chapter 1 is page 1159. Paul is writing to these Christians in Ephesus again, saved from their witchcraft and idolatry. And this is what he says in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, that's Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So what Paul says. Why are you Christians here? There were lots of people in Ephesus when I came and I preached the gospel. You believed. They didn't. Why did you believe? God chose you from before the foundation of the world. You are more loved than you could imagine, says Paul to these Christians. God set his love upon you even before you were born, even before the world was created. That's how great God's love for you is. And when you became a Christian, God was displaying his love for you in saving you. Choices. My, I have three boys. My youngest son isn't very good at choosing things. I don't know if you're good at choosing things. But we all have to make choices in life, don't we? We make them all the time. When you go shopping... You have your trolley and you push it down the aisle and there's all the crisps. Which, which one are you going to buy? What's your favourite flavour? You know, you might buy salt and vinegar. Do you like those? Or do you like the hot, chilli, spicy ones? Or do you like the ready salted? You can choose any flavour you want, can't you? And you look at them all and you think, um, I choose that one. And you take the one you want off the shelf and you put it in your basket and you wheel the the trolley down the aisle, don't you? Choices, that's what we do when we go shopping. We choose some and we don't choose others. That's natural, isn't it? That's part of everyday life. When we go to the library, we choose a book to read, don't we? Lots of books there. Which one are you going to choose? I choose that one. We choose one and we leave others behind. Don't know if you used to dread 
the, 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 the appointment of teams when you were at school in the playground. Everybody lines up. The two captains are choosing. I want him. He's really good in my team. I'm not sure about her. She's not maybe. And, and you're the last person left standing. Oh, choose me. Choose me. I'll be in goal. You know, the captains choose who they want in their team, don't they? We all understand this. This is all part of everyday life. We all make choices. Some people are chosen to represent their country in their national football team or to compete in the Olympics. It's an honour to be chosen, isn't it? They chose me. I'm glad they chose me. I'm privileged. So too, the Bible says, God chooses to save some and not to save others. Where does it say that in the Bible? Well, we've already read a few passages. Let's read on some more. 1 Corinthians, we've read that. The Christians in Corinth. Did you notice as we read those verses how I stressed the word chose? Kept coming up, didn't it? Again and again. God chose. God chose. God chose. God chose you. Why you? Because you were unimpressive. God didn't choose the wise because they're all big-headed and they boast how clever they are. God chose the simple to show that You don't get into heaven by being clever. God didn't choose the strong. He chose the the weak. Why? To show that it's not by your strength you get to heaven. God chose the ordinary. God chose the unimpressive. So that the big heads would all get left out. No one will be boasting in heaven. Everyone will be saying to God, be the glory. Great things he has done. He chose me. He saved me. That's what we read already. Think about Abraham. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 12. Very early on in the Bible again. Genesis chapter 12 is on page 10 of the Bible. Who was Abram, as he was called originally? Well, we read at the end of Joshua's life. When Joshua is speaking to the Israelites and he says, choose who you're going to follow. As for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. But you've got a choice. You could could worship the gods that Abraham worshipped back in Ur of the Chaldeans, the Babylonian gods. You can worship the gods that the Canaanites worship. They're all around you. Or you could worship the God of heaven, the God who brought you out of Egypt, who brought you into this promised land, who who dispossessed the Canaanites miraculously in front of you. So Abraham was an ordinary Iraqi idol worshipper. And yet, what do we read here? Verse 1 of chapter 12. Now the Lord spoke to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, And make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham was an idol worshipper, just like all the other people in his town in Ur. What else do we know about Abraham? Well, he was old. He was 75, and he was married to an old wife, Sarai who was barren. They had no children. Hardly the 
prime candidates for starting a new nation. Yet God chose them. Chosen not for good in me. Wakened up from wrath to flee, one of our hymns says, doesn't it? By Robert Murray McShane. So this one man, Abraham, became Abraham, the father of a multitude. He had Isaac, miraculously, with Sarah, who had uh, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob became Israel. And why did God choose Jacob slash Israel? Deuteronomy chapter 7 tells us. Let's look at that verse. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 7 is on page 179. Moses is now in the wilderness, the end of the 40 years of wandering. He's about to die. Joshua's about to take over. He's preaching his last sermon. And this is what he says in Deuteronomy 7, 7, to the nation of Israel about to go into the promised land. Verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you For you were the fewest of all the peoples. Were you a great and mighty nation? No. You were a tiny little nation. You were the least impressive, the least significant. And yet God chose you to be this special nation from whom the Messiah would come and be a blessing to all the nations in the world. Talking about Jesus Christ. Let's turn to the New Testament now, to Jesus' teaching in John's Gospel, chapter 10. Verse 24, which is on just at the bottom of page 1065. 1065. Jesus has been teaching about him being the good shepherd, the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. And some of the Jews listening have uh, not responded to his teaching. So verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you did not believe. You do not believe, sorry. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe... Because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them. Out of the Father's hand, I and the Father are one. So Jesus says to these Jews who who don't believe in him, who are not responding, he says, the reason you you don't believe me is because you're not part of my flock. You're not one of my sheep. My sheep recognize me. They hear my voice and they follow me. But you don't because you're, you're not one of my sheep. Look at his words in chapter 15 of John's Gospel to his disciples. Chapter 15 and verse 16. 
page 1072. Jesus is in the upper room. He's about to go to the cross. And he's teaching his disciples, preparing them for what is coming. And this is what he says in verse 16 to his disciples. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So do you remember back in the Gospels, Jesus is there walking past the disciples. There's James and John mending their nets and he says, follow me. And they leave their nets. They leave their fishing business and they follow Jesus. And he says the same to Peter and Andrew, follow me. And they do. He says to Matthew at his tax collector's office, follow me. And he does. So from their perspective, they had chosen to follow Christ. They'd obeyed the call. Jesus says, did you not realize? I chose you. I said to you, you follow me. I actually chose you before you responded to my choice. Let's look at book of Acts now. Acts 13, verse 48. This is the first missionary journey. Paul and Silas have gone from Antioch in Syria and they've traveled to the middle of what we would call Turkey today to a place called Pisidian Antioch, another Antioch. And they've gone to the synagogue, they've preached the gospel in that synagogue and this is what we read in chapter 13 and verse 48, it's on page 1096. On the first occasion uh, they got very excited when the gospel was preached and the whole city gathered And then when the Jews saw it, they were jealous. And this is what Paul and Silas say in response. Acts 13 and verse 48. Paul and Silas turn from the Jews to the Gentiles and say, From now on we will preach the gospel to the Gentiles. You Jews consider yourself unworthy of receiving eternal life. Verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So who believed? Those who were appointed to eternal life. That's what Luke says. Luke the doctor who wrote Acts. Those who've been chosen. The sheep, if you like, who heard the gospel voice of Jesus. They responded and they believed. So that's the biblical teaching there. Let's look also at the example of Jacob. Jacob, who became Israel. What kind of a man was he? Let's go back to Genesis and chapter 25. I'm going to skip over quite a bit of the story, but we'll just pick out a few verses in case you're not familiar with the story of Jacob. Isaac, as we mentioned earlier, had two sons, Jacob and Esau. They were miraculously conceived. After 20 years, Isaac prayed for his wife, who was also barren, and she had twins, and they were wrestling in Rebekah's womb. And Rebekah went and prayed to God and asked what was going on in her womb. Genesis 25, 
And verse 19, God speaks to Rebekah. And this is what he, he says. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they named him Esau. Afterward his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So they named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Therefore his name was Edom, which means red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So there we have these two brothers. Esau's the firstborn. Jacob is the second. And yet he wants to be the first, even in, in the process of being born. He's got hold of his brother's heel. He wants, no, let me be first. There's this competition in the womb before they're born, and it continues throughout their life. And here, Jacob has the opportunity. He sees the opportunity and takes the birthright from Esau, who despises it. He regards it as nothing. He eats a bowl of stew, he gets up and he walks off as if... He's done nothing. Then we read on in chapter 27. When Isaac is old and his eyes are failing, he wants to bless his son, his firstborn son, Esau. And this is what we read in verse 27, sorry, verse 20 of chapter 27, which is on page 25. Verse 20. But Isaac said to his son, this is Jacob now, who's dressed up, pretending to be Esau. How is it that you found it, the game, so quickly, my son? He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. How, how ironic those words are. <laughs> God gave me success hunting, so I'm, I'm back quickly. That's what he's kind of saying to his dad. 
And yet, God is overruling in all this mess. Who was wrong? Isaac was wrong. God had already said the younger would serve the older, but Isaac ignored that. Rebecca was wrong. Isaac was wrong. Esau was wrong. They were all wrong. Yet God had his way. God overruled. The Lord granted me success. How ironic those words are. Verse 35. Esau's now returned. He's realized that the blessing has gone to his brother, Jacob. And this is what he says, verse 35. But he said, sorry, this is Isaac speaking. Your brother came deceitfully and he's taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob, which means supplanter, he who grabs by the heel? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright and behold, now he's taken away my blessing. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I have made him Lord over you and all your brothers. I've given to him, uh, I've given to him for servants and with grain, wine, and I have sustained him. What can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me, O oh my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. In verse 41, now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to him, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. So now this competition between these brothers is turning into hatred, which Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is murder in the heart. And the parents recognize it. And the parents send Jacob away. So he flees. And he comes to Bethel. And he lays down his head. He sleeps with a, a rock as his pillow. And in verse 28 we read this. Verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And as he came to a certain place, he stayed there that night. Because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angel of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring." Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his dream and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Then he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jesus, Jacob took the stone that he had under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, which means house of God. But the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, 
If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. God appears to Jacob. God says, I will promise to give you these blessings. And he sets off to Padan Aram. And he spends 20 years with Laban. And he experiences what it's like to be lied to, to be cheated, to be tricked, as he tricked his father and his brother. And then he he leaves Laban. And he's returning with his, his wives, his two wives and his two concubines, and his children and all his flocks and Laban pursues him and catches up with him and accuses him of stealing the household idols. So in Genesis 31, verse 36, we pick up the story. Laban has searched through all of Jacob's goods. Rachel, who did steal the idols, was sitting on them, and so she kept them hidden. Then Jacob said, verse 36, Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban, Jacob said to Laban, What is my offence? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These twenty years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried. I have not eaten the rams of your flock. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hands you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was by day, the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters and six years for your flock. And you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hand and rebuked you last night. And then read down in verse 53. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father, Isaac. So God is still the God of his father. He still said, if you bring me back to Bethel, then God will become my God. Haven't quite got there yet. Jacob now returns. He's getting closer to Bethel. And Esau has heard, and his Esau is on the way to meet him, and he's got other men with him, and Jacob is afraid. Genesis 32, verse 6. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. And Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him, and the flocks and the herds and the camels, into two companies, thinking, If Esau comes to the one and camps and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. 
And Jacob said, O God of my father, Abraham, and God of my father, Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Jacob is now a humble man. Jacob is now pleading with the Lord and claiming the promises of God. That God would have mercy on him according to the promises that God made to Jacob. And in chapter 33, verse 11, Jacob and Esau meet. And what do we read there? Jacob has presented these gifts to Esau. He's gone ahead to try and calm down the anger of Esau. And each person with their gift has said, this is for you. But Jacob's behind. These are gifts for you. Eventually they meet. And Esau says, I don't need your gifts. This is what Jacob says. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously, there's that word, with me. And because I have enough, then he urged him and he took it. God has dealt graciously with me, says Jacob. I deserved nothing. I crossed this Jordan with a staff. God has blessed me and protected me and given me everything he promised. And I didn't deserve any of it. Why? Why, Jacob? Let's read Romans chapter 9. New Testament, page 1123. Romans 9, verse 10. God is talking, Paul here is talking about God choosing. And not only so, but also Rebekah had conceived children by one man, Isaac, our father Isaac, though he was not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. 
That's the biblical truth. That's the biblical evidence. How do you respond to that? Do you say, that doesn't sound fair to me? Paul heard that objection, didn't he? And answered it in Romans 9. That's what most people say, isn't it? That's not fair. If God chooses some and not others, it's not down to us. That's not fair. That's what some people say. What does Paul say? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Why? Why? Why does Paul reject that accusation? Well, Paul says God's free to choose who he wants. He's God. When you go shopping, you're free to choose what you buy, aren't you? Why isn't God allowed to choose? If you are, do you think you're greater than God? If you're allowed to choose, why isn't God allowed to choose? God is the creator of this universe. If God wants to choose some and not others, isn't he entitled? And the Bible also says that we are also responsible for everything we do. And we are called to be diligent, to make our calling and election sure. Some people say, if God has chosen me, then I'm okay, I'm going to heaven. I don't need to live a godly life. I can live as I please. The Bible says no, that's not the case. If you're a Christian, you have to strive to be holy. You have to make your calling and your election sure. That's what it says in 2 Peter 1.10. Do you remember blind Bartimaeus? He was helpless, he was blind, and yet he knew Jesus was going past. He said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. People said, shut up, shut up. He doesn't want to speak to you. And he said, no, no, no. He cried out all the more earnestly, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus heard him. We're responsible to cry out. We're responsible to call upon the name of the Lord. The Bible says all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And yet, we're told here that it is those whom God has chosen who respond. How does that make you feel? Do you feel that's unfair? Or do you feel amazingly privileged if you're a Christian? How do I feel? I'm amazed that God would choose me. I'm one of six children. I was adopted as a baby. My parents divorced when I was a young child. My mother was a single mother. I became very violent and aggressive at school. I became the worst behaved child in my school. I used to be in fights all the time. But the kids in my year were too easy to fight. So I used to pick on the kids above because they were bigger. They would give me a bigger fight. I was full of anger because my father had walked out on me. My mother despaired of me. She thought I would end up in prison. When I was 15, God saved me. Why? Because I was better than my five brothers and sisters? No. It's because of grace, because of his mercy, because of his kindness, because he chose to save me. Did I deserve it? No. Am I thankful? Yes. Was God free to choose me? Yes. 
Did he? Yes. My response is to give him glory. What's yours? Shall we pray? Father, thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you that you choose to save some. When in truth, none of us deserve to be saved. We're all like Jacob and Esau, wicked men, deserving of your wrath. And yet in your kindness, you choose to save some. Sinners like Jacob, sinners like me. And change us by your amazing grace. Thank you, Lord, that you choose to save people and not condemn us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Henry.